0: helped shape the national debate on issues ranging from American foreign policy to American conservatism. Before starting the Weekly Standard in 1995, Bill led the Project for the Republican Future where he helped to develop the strategy that produced the 1994 Republican Congressional Victory. Before that, he served in senior positions in the administrations of both President Reagan and President George H.W. Bush, including serving as Chief of Staff to Vice President Coyle. Before coming to Washington, Bill taught politics at both the University of Pennsylvania and Harvard, and he earned his undergraduate and PhD degrees from Harvard. With that, please join me in welcoming Bill Kristol. Well, thank you, Clark. It's, it's great to be here. I just, I'm, if you may notice, I have a little makeup on, which is not my usual thing for. <laughs> speaking and uh, not that there would be anything wrong with it. I I just came from CNN, so um, I didn't uh, hustle over after the show. Uh, It's a great, uh, really, pleasure and honor to be here at St. John's. Uh, I've been here a few times for various occasions, as you would imagine, over the years. The most memorable time I was here, I was thinking about this uh, last night, uh, was, I think it was February 24th, 1991, the day We launched, uh, we, I mean, the Bush administration, the first Bush administration, which I was Vice President Quayle's chief of staff, so sort of a relatively minor player in that, but uh, the Bush administration launched the first Gulf War. The ground troops went in. The air war began in January. The ground troops went in on February 24th. And I remember the night before getting a phone call from uh, uh, John Sununu, who was then chief of staff, from his assistance, inviting us all, obviously it was voluntary, to come to St. John's for a service at 7 a.m. to, you know, uh, pray for the well-being of our troops and of everyone, obviously, and the minimum of uh, uh, destruction that one has, one has when one goes to war. It was a very moving, uh, I, I came, actually, it was, I think it was a Sunday morning, if I'm not mistaken, a 7 a.m. service, I don't, is there normally a 7 a.m. service? I suppose not, or maybe there is, or maybe there was a special one put on by the, I can't remember, but it was a very moving, I remember the President, the Cabinet, White House senior staff, others there. Uh, military leaders, and it was a moving occasion, and that's really, for me, what this church uh, uh, said, you know, the most memorable thing for me about this church, and it was a memorable moment, and a tribute to President Bush that he thought of doing that and wanted uh, people to be there to realize the gravity of what he had ordered. That war went well, as well as wars can, in a way, and uh, so uh, that was, uh, I I remember that well. also, have, I believe our, our rabbi at Olam Tikva in Northern Virginia, or, which I attend, uh, has done some work on interfaith matters with uh, ministers from your church, so that's a, uh, a pleasure and a good thing. I don't know. Maybe you're not allowed to coordinate with people in Virginia. I don't know. It's like, a, I can see this is a very D.C. audience, you know. That's the state that's across the river there, Maybe you're not, you know. I know it's terrifying. You have to take a bridge to get there. Uh, anyway, it's good. good to be here. Uh, I was supposed to talk, I guess, about the current political situation, which is uh, kind of daunting. Let me, I, this is, you all are a knowledgeable group, so let me be reasonably brief, and we can have got some questions and, and comments, and um, maybe just make three points, I guess, that I think are important, uh, and there's so many one could, so many things, aspects one could discuss. But three, three points just to sort of help maybe, and I'm stepping back a little bit from the headlines here about the moment we're in. The first point I would summarize as, uh, with the number 45 percent in 2016, 45 percent of the Republican primary electorate ended up voting for Donald Trump. It was more like 36, 38 as the, during the competitive primaries, and then at the end, everyone dropped out except for Senator Cruz and Governor Kasich. And at the very end, everyone dropped out. And um, so Trump's number went up to 45. It is interesting that I think he was the first Republican nominee, maybe the first nominee of either party, in the modern primary system who didn't end up with a majority of the primary voters, uh, the primary votes that were cast. But of course he won in the Republican uh, rules, which a lot of winner-take-all primaries early on allowed him to win with, with a plurality. So 45% of Republicans voted for Donald Trump. I'm not a big fan of the president, but leaving all that aside, just analytically, it's interesting, a uh, total outsider Someone who had never held elective office or been a cabinet secretary or been, or been a general in the US Armed Forces. Every single prior president had, has been one of those. Um, someone who ran against his own party almost as much as against the Democrats, ran against Bush, McCain, Romney, against traditional Republican foreign policy, traditional Republican trade policy, um, against a lot of what a lot of the other leaders of the party thought about immigration. Again, leaving totally aside whether he's right or wrong about all these policy issues, uh, also ran in a very different tone from previous Republicans like Bush and Dole and McCain and Romney. Um, But it's very striking that he got 45% of the vote. Almost equally striking and much less commented on, because of course Trump's now president and became the nominee and then the president, is that Bernie Sanders got 45% of the vote in the Democratic primary and I'm not comparing Trump to Sanders as individuals or character or anything like that, but Sanders ran against his party too. He ran against the Bill Clinton administration. He ran against the corporatist domination of democratic politics. Sanders, remember, refused to call himself a Democrat until 2015. He was a proud democratic socialist. He didn't caucus with the, I mean, he called himself an independent. He caucused with the Democrats, but he didn't sort of officially join the party. I think if I was talking with a historian on a campus a couple of weeks ago, and I said, I mean, that's really striking, isn't it? And what would you think if someone came to you and just said, here's a, there was a race in in the United States where 45% of Republicans voted for someone who ran against the Republican establishment and against the establishment as a whole with very heterodox views on policy issues, and 45% of the Democrats voted against uh, uh, the Democratic establishment with also Uh, a candidate who would have been viewed in prior years as pretty far outside the mainstream in terms of his policy views. Uh, And the historian said to me, well, you'd normally say you're in the middle of a big depression, a real economic crisis, maybe a Vietnam War-type situation, riots in the streets. That's what leads to that degree of turmoil, of, of disenchantment with the elites and the establishment of rebellion within both parties. And what's striking about 2016 is, I mean, one can say that there was an after effect of 2008, after effect of Iraq, the elites had failed in various ways, and it's all perfectly legitimate, the establishment's deserved some comeuppance, but to have 45% of the electorate in each party turning against the establishment of those parties, of each party, is pretty striking. And there's something to be learned from that. Now there's endless disputes about does this show how bad, wage stagnation was for working class Americans? Does it show social breakdown? Does it show a much needed uh, sort of kick in the fanny for for the establishments at long last? Is it just a historical cycle that this happens every 30, 40 years? Uh, Sociologists, historians, political scientists can can argue about this. But just as a fact, it's important. I mean, I think Trump won the nomination. You know, he had a lot of particular things that helped him, 16 opponents. Uh, Jeb Bush as his first primary opponent. Uh, he won the general election with some skillful demagoguery, I would say, but also uh, some luck and some assistance from various others. Um, the main thing he was assisted by, honestly, though, was when the country was in a mood for change. He was able to run first against Jeb Bush, whom I very much like and respect, but the son and brother of two of our most more recent presidents, and then against Hillary Clinton the wife of a recent president and herself, someone who had been in office obviously for quite a long, or been prominent in public life for quite a long time, and in office for some time, um, and part of the current administration, sec- the preceding administration as Secretary of State. The one thing I learned in '92, when I was part of that first Bush administration uh, was how hard it is to be a uh, representative of the status quo when there's a mood for change. And 92 also, incidentally, was a was country in such horrible shape. In 92, we had won the Cold War eh, almost without firing a shot. We'd had a pretty good decade economically under Reagan and Bush. There were issues, obviously, but America was not falling apart in 1992. I think historians will look back and say that was kind of a, almost a high watermark almost of American Uh, prestige in the world and power in the world and even at home Uh, an awful lot of good things happening and some good bipartisan achievements by President Bush uh, the Clean Air Act the Americans with Disabilities Act with the Democratic Congress but when people want change when people get disaffected very hard to stand up against that or to run against that that's why I always thought that Trump could win the general election I didn't believe he'd win the primary I thought he would be like Pat Buchanan or, or Ron Paul before him in terms of being a protest candidate from a certain part of the party that would end up getting 20% of the vote but not 40. Uh, or if you want to put it differently, like some of these businessmen who've run before, uh, Steve Forbes, Herman Cain, others, you know, who also get some votes early on because people want to change, but then Republicans always have, you know, ended up defaulting to a pretty conventional. Uh, for better or worse, a candidate, a governor, a vice president, a senator. Um, so I didn't think he'd win the Republican primary. The general election, uh, I always thought he had a chance. I remember being on TV and saying, it's a one in four chance. I thought he would win, you know, he was behind in the polls. I assumed Hillary would win because she was ahead in the polls. But, you know, in a mood of change with a candidate who didn't do a very good job, maybe she couldn't have really, of explaining how she was going to change things, but she was from the in party, I always thought Trump had a bit of a chance. I remember talking about this with a lot of Hillary's people. We were on TV together and chatting, you know, off air. And I said, can't you do a little more to kind of explain what she would do to improve things, to change things? I mean, everyone knew what Trump would do. He may not like it, but Trump was gonna build a wall. He was gonna keep us out of Middle Eastern wars. He was gonna get better trade deals. He was gonna prevent terrorists from immigrating to the United States. I mean, one or two other things, bring steel and coal jobs back, allegedly. I mean, again, these were all maybe false promises, or in some cases, maybe dangerous promises, but they were, a voter could say, I want change, Trump's gonna bring change, I'm not too sure about all the aspects of it, but at least he'll shake things up. I think it was a big mistake of the Clinton campaign not to, not to try to do a little more to make her a candidate of change. They would say, to, to be fair to them, you know, that look, she had an agenda of change. If you look at her website, there was a lot of policy proposals. Um, she tried to talk about them, no one cared much. She was so much in people's mind, in a way, as part of the status quo. Uh, Trump did a pretty good job of uh, putting around the defensive in certain ways. Anyway, and they ended up trying to disqualify Trump, really, that was the heart of the Clinton campaign. Uh, I, mean, I myself thought the disqualification was correct, but... Um, uh, and a, and a plurality of American voters did too, incidentally, but he got just enough votes in the right states. And I pulled a kind of wonder, drew an inside straight, you might say, in the electoral college uh, and won. But I come back again to the forty five percent. Final just aspect on that. Also, things were happening elsewhere that are happening elsewhere in the world, obviously, along the lines of a populist nationalist rebellion against. Uh, the status quo. And again, if you look at the world, I mean, you wouldn't say that, again, it's not, we're not in a Great Depression. In fact, we're at a pretty decent recovery, almost globally at this point, from 08. Uh, there are very tough foreign policy situations in the world, but again, it's not as if we're in the middle of you know, World War I, thank God, or World War II, or even the height of the Cold War. Uh, but for whatever reason, there's been a, there's a sense of disruption, automation, technology, globalization, whatever the, issues are um, that seems pretty pervasive. So I think it's a big deal. I guess that's all of that. I think Trump is in some ways a symptom uh, of a much broader phenomenon that has to be taken seriously. Having said that, my second point now is Uh, The fact that he's a symptom doesn't mean, some people take that and say, well therefore we should, you know, don't worry too much about him, it's, uh, people like me are too obsessed with him as president, and you know, we have to talk about all these deeper issues and all. I'm all for talking about these deeper issues. I once studied some of them in graduate school, and you know, taught a little bit, and I'm interested in reading books about them and so forth. Still, it is a very important fact, and this would be my second point I guess, that Donald Trump is president. You know, uh, he is a demagogue, I believe. And I, again, don't even mean that particularly pejoratively. I just think that's, if you read the classical accounts of demagogues or what the Federalist says about, the Federalist papers say about demagogues, he is that type of politician. Not much in the way of consistent beliefs over the years. Maybe trade's the only issue he's really cared much about. Immigration, he seized on, as he saw it had huge resonance in the Republican primary and some beyond the Republican primary. He'd never been concerned about immigration. That's an issue I've, been involved in back and forth, complicated issue, over 10, 15 years. I know a lot of private sector leaders who've been on both sides, actually, of that issue. Trump was never involved at all. He didn't give money to the anti-immigration campaigns. He didn't give money to the pro-immigration campaigns. He married some immigrants. That was his, uh, <laughs> um, so employed a lot of them, actually. And that's, that was kind of it, you know? He saw that it clicked when he raised that issue in 2015. Uh, he saw that the Muslim ban helped him even though all of us denounced him for saying that in November of 2015. Uh, and he really played that issue as I said, I think, in a, in a demagogic way. So he's a, he's, a, he's a skillful demagogue in some ways, but he's present, And that really is new. We've had plenty of demagogues in American history. Every democracy has them. The founders warned against them. Uh, you know, Joe McCarthy, George Wallace, you could, we can all find them on the right and the left. They tend to flourish more in times of national crisis or strain, obviously, in the 30s, Huey Long, Father Coughlin, so forth. Um, it's a little mysterious that he, as I said earlier, you know, got so much support in 2016. Um, but he's president. All these other demagogues, governors, senators, failed candidates, and they have a limited effect. I mean, take Joe as a good example. You know, senator did a lot of damage, I would say. He certainly disrupted American politics, dominated it almost from what, maybe 1950 to, to 54. But at the end of the day, he was one senator. He overreached. Uh, Eisenhower, who was cautious in dealing with him, came down hard at the end. The Republicans in Congress came down hard. He was censured, And that was kind of it. It had its after effects, but they were limited. You could come to America in 1960 and not be obsessed about what Joe McCarthy had or hadn't done six, eight years before. Not that individual careers were not you know, damaged and so forth, but as a big picture thing, it didn't probably change the course of American foreign policy or American history very much. And the same you might say for some other f- figures like that. Um, pre- being president is very different. I mean, that's one of the most important things about Trump is that he's president of the United States. And that makes him not just a symptom, but a cause. He ha- presidents have a lot of power. They have a lot of effect in terms of the bully pulpit. Uh, Voters would say if one senator says something and another senator says something else okay voters aren't sure you know it's kind of just noise and voters tend to discount it a little bit. If the president of the United States says over and over certain things some chunk of voters at least the ones in his own party will at least at first tend to think okay well that seems like that's a plausible explanation of things and if he says them in a certain tone Pretty hard for someone like me to keep saying, you know, a veteran of the first Bush administration, like Clark, you know, to, doesn't like that tone, to say, uh, well, that's not presidential. What does that mean, he's the president? You know, if he's, and, if, and if he's, you know, president, and he's holding most of his support at this point, not increasing it, but holding it, and most Republicans in Congress are going along with him, they don't love him, but not distancing themselves radically from him. Pretty hard to say now, it's gonna be harder to say three years from now, that, you know, attacking your opponents in personally demeaning ways, attacking the actual agencies of the government you're running, attacking people who've served the country for 20 or 30 or 40 years in law enforcement or intelligence, uh, or attacking the whole institutions, it's pretty hard to say, well, president shouldn't behave that way. I mean, I could say it, and I hope others say it, but, you know, as I say, being president matters. So I think the people who, who sort of want to go to the, you know, he's a symptom, not a cause, and don't obsess with him, I, Maybe I look a little obsessive sometimes about him, but I, I think it's really important that he not succeed, from my point of view, in changing the the ways, the norms of presidential behavior. Um, maybe he's gonna do some of that anyway, incidentally. It's, you know, I think the bottom line lesson for me of the last year, at least a year and a quarter, is the institutions of America are pretty strong. Um, we can afford to have someone as president and again, I'm anti-Trump, so I'll just put it this way, but uh, people can make up their own minds, but uh, someone like Trump is president. I mean, we have separation of powers. We have an independent judiciary. We have an extremely strong bar and legal system. We have federalism. We have universities. We have churches and synagogues and mosques. We have a civil society. We have a lot of things that make, limit the power of a president and his ability to do certain things. so, I'm pretty bullish. I, I think the founders have been vindicated in some ways. I mean, they, they set up this system and they were very concerned about uh, the, de- as they said in uh, Federalist uh, 51, I think, is enlightened statesmen will not always be at the helm. Um, and therefore, you need to sort of have precautions and checks uh, and a system that, that limits uh, uh, non enlightened statesmen uh, from doing what they're doing. Um, the one institution that I think has failed The most, probably, for me, is Congress, which hasn't really stepped up to the plate at a time when there's not much presidential leadership. And within Congress, I've gotta say, the Republican Party, which in my view has been much too complacent with uh, this president. The institutions have been strong. The damage that's done to democratic norms and sort of behavior is harder to tell how much that lasts. You know, it could be that we snap back, as it were, we reject it, we think it's, uh, yeah, it was unseemly, it becomes a parenthesis in American history, uh, could be it becomes an inflection point, and other politicians learn lessons from this, and junior politicians in both parties, incidentally, decide that, well, this is the way you succeed. And again, you don't see it quite yet, because we're only a year in, but two years, four years, what if it becomes six or eight, or what if someone like Trump, you know, becomes uh, succeeds in the other party. You, you can imagine a real change, I think, in the character of American politics. American politics is sometimes boring. We don't always have the best people, obviously, in the highest offices. But there's something to be said if you compare it with the rest of the world, for the fact that we have expected a certain degree of dignity and propriety from our presidents. There have been slip- ups, obviously. But you know really, in public, I think the standard has been pretty high and sort of held to pretty well and from most senior officials in the the executive branch and, for that matter, in in Congress. And you, this, you know, it's one of those things that's not, you take for granted and it's not that exciting. As I say, it's almost sometimes a little boring and you'd like a little more uh, pizzazz in your politics until you go look abroad and see what it means not to have a politics that's conducted like this. It's almost the definition, really, of American exceptionalism. If you look at the political scientists who've written about it, we don't have the kind of politics other countries have or haven't. The, the fevered politics, the extreme politics. We never had really a communist party here. We never had a fascist party here. That We had little indications of those things. But that was in the 30s when the whole term American exceptionalism it was brought up by social scientists, brought across from Germany, I think it was, to here. That's kind of what it meant, actually, before it became a political slogan. It was really a social science term. Why does America not have what Europe had, communists and fascists fighting in the streets? And there are many, many explanations, and Tocqueville, and people studied sociology, culture, uh, economics, for why this big country, we settled the West, people, were, whatever. I mean, but it, it was a real thing, and it is a real thing, incidentally. and it's something we can be proud of. Uh, and I worry about, those of us who are, I think, anti-Trump, that's the thing we worry about the most, that at least one of the two major parties, one of the two major Uh, movements in American politics, conservatism, one of the two major parties, the Republican Party becomes a, let's call it, European-style party, and that that would not be good, in my opinion, for the country. Anyway, and all of that is possible, I think, because he's president, and presidents have more of an effect than senators, governors, mayors, you know, people on talk radio just by themselves. Uh, Third point, final point, um, of the different things that I would sort of emphasize, in terms of thinking about the next, three years, and the current moment. So I think it, domestically, I'd be pretty, I suspect the country will change, won't change radically. Uh, when I, what I worry about more is the international system. I think we, I think we tend to overestimate or underestimate how fragile it is. It's, we've had a pretty good 70 years, now it's become fashionable to sort of denigrate the achievements of the last 70 years, but if you step back again and take a historical look, um, you know, the world has made an awful lot of progress in many, many ways, economic and other ways, in 70 years. And that progress is partly, not entirely by any means, due to an international liberal order that was maintained by American, uh, supported by American political leadership, American military strength, American economic commitment to a pretty open economic order, which allowed, what, a billion people, maybe, in China and India, maybe more, to come out of really pretty terrible poverty into pretty decent lives. That's not a trivial moral achievement, you know, and that is due, it's mostly due to them, but it is due to us helping preserve a world in which I think there have been no wars, basically, in East Asia since, what, 1978, and go look at the preceding 50 or 70 years and see what that looks like, and of course the same is true of Europe and and elsewhere. So it hasn't all been great, and it certainly hasn't been easy, and we've made mistakes, and we were too confident, probably, that it all would work out for everyone uh, in a great way. But it's not a, it's, it's, it is a, something worth uh, praising and, I think, worth preserving and strengthening. And there, one just doesn't know. So far, it's mostly held together, I've got to say. Um, partly our allies have a lot of interest in holding it together, and they've sort of bent over backwards to do so. Partly, uh, I think President Trump has had pretty good advisors who've constrained some of his impulses. Uh, We're a big country. There's a lot of just momentum and sort of uh, inertia, almost, that keeps the thing going in a pretty reasonable way. But um, I don't know. You just don't know in foreign policy. I think which which straw breaks what camel's back, or whatever metaphor you want. You know, think is where you hit a tipping point uh, in terms of people's uh, feeling that they can depend on us and depend on some basics about the international order. I was in Japan in December, I guess it was uh gave a couple of talks, and my wife hadn't been, so we went together. We mostly we were just tourists, honestly, and it was very interesting. Uh, but I met with a few government officials, um, um, pretty senior ones, and it was interesting. I mean, the uh, first 10 or 15 minutes of the meetings, they were very polite, of course, and diplomatic. Uh, we're all, uh, everything's fine. Uh, President Prime Minister Abe and President Trump have a great relationship. That's very good. And I think it's important, that Mr. Crystal that when you speak, I was giving a couple of public lectures. Mr. Crystal, when you speak, you really need to reassure people that everything's fine. There's been a lot of press about how things might fall apart and to tell them it's not gonna fall apart. And I said, I don't know, you know? <laughs> do I really believe that? I it's a little, I can't, well, can't be too reassuring, but I, I tried to be a little, but then after I pushed them after the first 15 minutes and they got more comfortable and I said, look, it's off the record and all. I mean, they were kind of, you know, we don't know. We don't know what's gonna happen and we're pretty worried. And look, we're, Japan's a big, wealthy country. They will watch out for themselves, as they should, if they have to, but, you know, again, one doesn't really want a situation where countries like Japan or South Korea or others start deciding they kind of have to take care of themselves and not depend on the U.S., and that you do get some things that could spin out of control in those circumstances. I was very struck there, for example, that TPP, the Asia trade deal, which, I mean, no one here has thought of, I would guess that None of us has discussed this in a year, and it was a, Small matter economically in terms of our uh, economic well-being. I mean, that was a huge deal in Asia. That was an important agreement by the countries around China, mostly democracies, that would link us all close, more closely together, help contain China, help make sure that the uh, kind of the liberal order of both defense and trade remains strong in East Asia. And as one of them put it to me, one of the Japanese diplomats put it to me. You know, the thing was going along. Bush negotiated it, then Obama negotiated it. Republicans in Congress supported Obama more than the Democrats did, but some Democrats did too. Uh, when he negotiated it, everyone was for it. We we went out on a limb, the Japanese did, to sort of do some things that their rice farmers didn't like and so forth. Other countries went out on a limb to, to negotiate, and suddenly we look up in 2016, and because there's some domestic opposition, Trump was always against it, obviously, Hillary Clinton turns against it, even though she helped negotiate it, suddenly both presidential candidates are standing on stage saying, oh no, we're against TPP. And again, we barely registered that here. But over there, that was like, as the guy said to me when he was being a little less diplomatic later in the meeting, I mean, that's not serious. You know, you're not a serious country if you just turn away from something that administrations of both parties have negotiated for a decade. And other countries have staked their governments, have staked their prestige on and so forth. It's a little thing. We're surviving TPP. They've sort of gone ahead with it without us, which of course is a mixed blessing. President Trump just said this week, didn't he, that he's well, maybe we should look at getting back into it, but that's not so easy to do once you've pulled out. So we'll see. But I, I worry about the international order more than the more than the domestic order in that respect. I just think it's intrinsically more more fragile. So it's a very unusual moment. It's a very challenging moment. Uh, I don't want to minimize the either the challenges or the risks I remain confident this is a great country we'll make it through this is the uh, this is the anniversary I was thinking about this also of Lincoln's uh, death I guess his assassination was yesterday the, the 14th today is the 15th when he, he dies early in the morning of the, of the 15th and obviously we made it through the Civil War we made it through things after that uh, major world wars we can make it through this but I, I think it's a mistake I'm confident in our strength as a country and, as, and in the strength of our institutions, but I think it's also a mistake to minimize the real challenges we, we have ahead over the next few weeks, months, and, uh, and years. Why don't I stop there? And uh, we have time for questions, comments, uh, objections. Mike. Do you think the House Repu- First question, do you think the House Republicans have thrown in the towel on the fall election? And the second question is, what's your assessment of the state of the Democratic Party today? We can can stay for a couple of hours, right? There's no problem here. You don't don't need to have an 11 o'clock service. Um, The... uh, so the first, I mean, Paul Ryan's resignation was a pretty uh, striking, I don't think it was that much of a surprise, but a striking announcement this week. And I think the fact that he announced it now, rather than let's say running for re-election, and then if they lost the House, stepping down to Speaker, which there's some precedent for that sort of thing, um, uh, is, may, people have taken that to mean they're throwing in the towel on the House, which doesn't help their chances in House races, because it means fundraisers and so forth. will look at the Senate. I think the odds are Democrats win the House, but I have also, uh, as we've seen in the last couple of years, the odds don't always play out and things can change. So I'm very cautious in making any prediction these days. Um, yeah, I saw an interesting, someone did a very s- straightforward, so it was useful in a way in politics, you get too much in the weeds, you know, Uh, If Democrats outperform their 2016 numbers by 8%, which is kind of what the polls suggest now, Democratic generic ballots, sort of plus 8 or so, uh, Democrats would win the House. They'd probably pick up 30, 35, uh, maybe even 40 House seats. Interestingly, because the map in the Senate is so skewed this year, uh, there's so many Republican states and strong Trump states, Republicans would win Senate seats, actually. So if you just assume a kind of nationalized election with a, Trump-Hillary type of race, but with the Hillary, the Democrats doing better than Hillary did. They still, you know, Trump won Missouri by 19 points, Trump won Indiana by, I don't know, double digits, North Dakota by God knows 30 or something. I mean, those are Democratic senators have a bit of a, uh, if it's a nationalized election, ironically, it, it helps Democrats in the House, maybe it hurts them a little bit in the Senate. So you could end up with, with that scenario. Um, Possibly. The Ryan thing is just amazing. I mean, I'm a longtime friend of Paul since he was here as a staffer back in the early, mid-90s. Um, you know, t- six years ago, think of it this way. F- yeah, it's almost, well, just almost six years ago, summer of, 19, of 2012, Paul Ryan is selected by Mitt Romanius as VP. Having, in the preceding two or three years, in a very impressive way, and I would say, as a Republican, I mean, very, very constructive way, brought the House Republicans on board a pretty tough sell politically in terms of reforming Medicare, curbing entitlement growth, being serious about the deficit and the debt, uh, and so forth. I mean, that was going to be the – Ryan looked like the future of the Republican Party. Romney's picking him in a way was a signal of that, and, of course, if he had won, would have been the vice president in line, and so forth. Um, So that was six years ago. Ryan was the ascendant figure in the Republican Party. Six years later, he's resigning, and Donald Trump is president. It's a pretty astonishing arc in a short period of time. Um, Democrats, I don't know. I mean, it's, you know, for now they can just, they probably could afford to be the, you know, the non the anti-Trump party and uh, we'll see who they nominate. But there are a lot of fights going on beneath the surface obviously for the future of the party. I'm really uncertain how that plays out. I don't have a, every Democrat I talk to has a different view on that. I mean, it looks from the outside like the energies on the left of the parties going left. On the other hand, in the actual primaries or elections that have been held so far, um, in Virginia they nominated the more moderate candidate who obviously won a big victory in the governor's race. It, that Pennsylvania special election was a little weird because it was a special election, so he was nominated by kind of a, not by a primary, but by a, a you know a, a, a committee meeting almost to the Democratic committee men, I think, in that, and women in that district. And So Connor Lamb gets nominated, uh, I'd say as a the Democrats would do better the more Ralph Northams and Conor Lambs and Doug Joneses they put off, I would say, and the fewer sort of, you know, Bernie Sanders uh, uh, fire breathers. But, you know, it's a free, com- primaries, voters will decide. So I don't know where the Democratic Party ends up. And they look like they're going to have a really wide open presidential race in, in 2019, 2020.
1: Thank you, sir. Um, that was very nice and very insightful. Um, I do have a, a question. To a specific portion of your speech, where you mentioned forty-five percent of both sides of the aisle um, voted for anti-establishment candidates, and you uh, stated that that's a potential indicator or harbinger of you know certain turmoil in certain regards, and yet you know it was a peaceful election. People came together and voted, and everyone was completely surprised, including myself, of course. Um, I guess you know that that goes back to two things I think the, the people the values of the country and the values of the system right and I think people believe in the values of the country but not so much the system right and that's what I'm trying to do getting to the question what are what is congress doing to change the system what is congress doing to enable my generation opportunity right and that's the question that needs to be asked not, not, are we looking to further peace and prosperity? Peace and prosperity has been there, right? Okay.
0: Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I, I, was, uh, I was on a panel today. last week with Bill Galston, who served in the Clinton White House, who had a good formulation of that. We were talking about, uh, I guess it was on the anniversary of Martin Luther King's assassination uh, a week or two weeks ago, I guess now. And, um, he had a good, and we're comparing the country to 1968. And in some ways, the turmoil seems much less great and much less threatening than I mean, I was in high school then, I guess, but I remember it some. And you read about it in history books. And, and Bill had a good formulation. The country seems to be in better shape or less socially for all the divisions we have, for all the Red America, Blue America, for all that stuff. I mean, you don't go around the country. It doesn't feel like 68 felt. Uh, he was, he's a little bit older than I am, so he only remembers that. Um, the country's in probably better shape than it was in 68, but the political system may be in worse shape. And I think that's an interesting, I'm not sure that's right, but it's an interesting formulation. It does seem that Congress in particular is broken, hyper-partisan, can't pass budgets, can't pass, le- pass legislation. That's a f- those are fixable things, not easy, it's complicated. Some of the things that have caused that are things that are we don't really control, there are, things like gerrymandering you could say you could fix, but then the whole sorting of the parties, the sociological and cultural stuff, obviously that's beyond any one politician, or maybe any group of politicians to fix. But I think it's worth looking at the, I very much agree, if I were advising either a Republican candidate to choose who's gonna challenge Trump or a Democratic candidate for 2020, I would say, yeah, run as a big political reformer, not, as, not drain the swamp or blow it up or whatever that just, but, but really fix the system so we can govern ourselves more competently and more, and more seriously, I think that's important. It's funny, when you look at the state and local level, I wouldn't say what has the sense that everything is falling apart, right? I mean, I travel around a fair amount, and many of you do. You go to cities, they have mayors, they seem to be, you know, they're not wildly divided, many of them. You go to counties, you go to states, incidentally. Pretty, a lot of fairly popular governors governing pretty centrist ways, often with legislatures held by the other parties. And you know, the states seem to be mostly, I wouldn't overdo this, but you know, functioning more or less under certain constraints and all that. It does seem like Washington in particular, and I would say Congress in particular, uh, is broken. I kind of agree with that. Uh, Long time Weekly Standard subscriber, so thank you very much for that. Uh,
1: talking about primaries uh, conventions, we're seeing a lot, and, and having gone to some conventions myself as a delegate, uh, single issue persons coming out there we're seeing the candidate selection process seems that those that are centrist are getting kicked out they're they're getting pushed to the side, and do we need to look at new ideas on candidate selection and how we involve the average voter to get people up into power that can work better together?
0: I think there's it's worth looking at a bunch of new ideas, both in terms of primaries but also voting you could ha- and voting in both primaries and general elections other some i think one state maybe city now is experimenting with ranked uh, can't, what's it called ranked candidate voting where sort of uh, you vote your first choice and then your second choice if your first choice doesn't make the final top three or two you know then it, the votes get distributed to your second choice i think a lot of private groups do this actually because you sort of want the person who has the broadest support to be the head of your pta or your you know country club or something like that maybe your church i don't know um but In politics, we tend to have a very much of a first-past-the-post sort of binary system. Sometimes we have a runoff. But you could argue that some of those kinds of reforms might help. The truth is, in the primaries, though, I mean, moderate voters just have to get out to vote. I mean, what the problem is, a problem, but the fact is that the more intense people on both sides vote, they tend to belong to organizations that are good of reminding them to vote. The NRA, which is, I'm just guessing may not be that wildly popular in this room, the NRA is powerful not because of the money, really. That's, a lot of other groups give a lot of money, and a lot of people give more money. It's because they have 5 million members who really believe in, that the NRA speaks for them, and the NRA is extremely good at communicating with those people and saying, here's who we're supporting in this primary. And in a small turnout primary, you know, 2,000, 4,000 people saying, Well, I don't really know much about these two candidates. They look kind of similar on tax policy and on this and that. But this one is the NRA endorsed one, really makes a difference in a Republican primary in large parts of the country. And the same is true on the Democratic side in terms of teachers' unions, uh, Emily's list, Planned Parenthood, and other groups. And there's no reason intrinsically why more moderate, less special interest groups can't also target primary voters. We now all in a way, have the technology to do this, you might say. Um, you know, They can spend money just like the, the other groups can, but uh, they tend not to. So you do get a kind of skewed primary vote, which then, by the time the moderates look up, or some of the independents who aren't registered in either party, um, in states that have party registration, look up in the general election, well, that's kind of, they're giving a, a choice of A and B, and it didn't occur to them, they should have voted for C or D in the primary if they wanted a broader choice. I do think the system, people are now more aware of the problem, I think that will help fix it a little bit. And I do think at the national level, incidentally, if the, I'd say if Trump were to stack, Trump will be challenged in the Republican primary, if he were to stagger to a sort of renomination, but were weak, and the Democrats went left, let's just say with Sanders, I think you really could have a situation this obviously hasn't happened in America for an awful long time, where an independent candidate could be competitive. You really could have a breakup of the two-party system. I also think that modern technology and other things contributes to this. So I'm very much agnostic or open-minded, I guess. Uh, if I probably shouldn't say agnostic in this place. Uh, very much open-minded. Uh, maybe, I sh- maybe I should, depending on how progressive a uh, place we are. I don't even want to go there, you know. I, I, I'm very much open-minded about... Um, you know, kind of where the political system is two or four or six years from now. I think the chances of pretty big changes are greater than they have been just because of what we saw in 2016. And and also in 2008, think of it this way, I'll just quickly say, from about 1980 really to 2008, we had pretty, for all the drama, and it was exciting, and most of us you know, were adults all that time, right? And uh, it, w- it was pretty predictable. I mean, both each party m- more or less nominated the next in line, uh, senior senators, vice presidents, you know, figures, major figures in the party. Uh, they ran against each other, you know, and fairly predictable, honestly, presidential campaigns. If the economy was decent, the incumbent won. If it wasn't, he might be challenged. In 2008, I think Obama, defeating Clinton in the primary was a bit of a harbinger of things were changing. You know, a fourth, the man who'd been in the Senate for four years, very impressive candidate obviously, and then obviously 2016 was sort of that on the other side in, in space. And so I do, I, I think lots of things we've taken for granted about how our political system works, and what's likely to happen, those could go out the window. Yeah, the I mean Washington is a monopartisan country, uh, city and what effect does that have on our on our politics. I mean, I think an awful lot of people in government on the other hand live in Maryland or Virginia, honestly, and uh, Virginia's a pretty bipartisan, I mean, pretty closely divided state, Um, and a lot of the partisanship, I mean, Washington uh, has been a majority, I think still close to majority African-Americans, the city and African-Americans for various historical reasons have been overwhelmingly democratic. I don't think that has that much to do with it being the nation's capital, it's true in a million other, in many other big cities, and uh, you know in this area and elsewhere, right? So voting patterns aren't that different in Baltimore, let's say. So I, I'm not sure how much of an effect it has. I would say actually, uh, I mean I'm cognizant of the fact that they're you know, and generally it's sort of a liberal city, I guess you'd say. The conventional wisdom, the establishment's mostly liberal, but I would say so. I grew up in New York, first of all, on the west side of New York, so of course Washington looks incredibly fair and balanced to me, uh, and normal compared to New York City in my day. I went to Harvard, and uh, my first election I voted in was in 72. They did a poll of the student body uh, that year, Harvard Crimson, I think in October. Uh, 91% of Harvard students were for George McGovern, 5.5% were for Eldridge Cleaver, the Black Panther candidate, <laughs> and 2% were for Richard Nixon. So for me, this is you know, totally, <laughs> This is really great here, you know? But I would say, honestly, and I don't know what you all have found on this, uh, so our kids, we moved to Washington in 85. Our kids were, kids were either very little or not born. Um, we, went, they, we lived in Northern Virginia, and they went to Fairfax County public schools, and we lived, you know, McLean and all that, Arlington and McLean. I would say the experience they had growing up was not monopartisan. I think one of the great things about Washington, I always say this to friends from New York, who think Washington is a parochial city. New York is much more parochial than Washington in its political views. The one thing about Washington is administrations turn over. Congress has a lot of members of both parties. There are people, lobbyists who, lobby members of both parties, there are lawyers who work with members of both parties. So actually, our kids found this growing up, they had friends whose parents were, you know, father or mother was a Republican member of Congress or a Democratic member of Congress or a former official in the Commerce Department under uh, Jimmy Carter or a former official in the State Department under George H.W. Bush, and actually they had a pretty, you know, in that respect, had more of a sense of what the country, country is like. An awful lot of Washington, after, if you take Washington, in the broad sense of Maryland and Virginia are people who came, to, like me, who came to Washington from elsewhere to work in government or different administrations, and even government. Obviously, federal bureaucrats tend to be a little bit on the liberal side, but there are a heck of a lot of military and law enforcement and intelligence agency types who are not so uh, predominantly liberal. So I, I found I'm Jews, I'm Jewish, are very liberal. But actually, Olam Tikva, the conservative synagogue, conservative little c, uh, synagogue in Northern Virginia is much less politically, I mean, it's, it tries to stay out of politics mostly, but it's much less Knee-jerk liberal, I would say, than synagogues I went to as a kid in New York, or synagogues I went to when I lived in Boston or Philadelphia, and that's partly because you know everyone has some neighbor who was not where they are politically. A uh, little more in Northern Virginia than in Northwest DC. I will, I will acknowledge. I will acknowledge that.